hidden. In the greater Cleveland, Ohio area, maybe we should say the greater uh, Akron area, uh, Dan and Joanne Palika uh, reside, and they come down here for a few months every year. And uh, I've asked uh, Joanne if she would come and share a little bit about her testimony and about how she came to faith in Christ. So, Joanne? Make the best of it. That's what we're doing. (laughs) Please pray with me first. Oh, gracious Lord, I echo Ron's prayer from last week. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. And all praise and honor and glory be unto you and you alone, O God. The setting of my childhood was almost ideal in the eastern suburbs of Cleveland. My older brother and I had very loving Christian parents who were supportive and encouraging. There was discipline, but never criticism, and a great work ethic example. Both of my parents grew up in great poverty and hardship, but my father was a brilliant man. He became a lawyer and a CPA, and by society's benchmark, we were affluent. But I didn't know that as a child. The four of us had fun together. We worked together. We laughed a lot, and we loved each other. For reasons that I can't explain, especially within this loving home context, I felt very unworthy, with low self-esteem, definitely a sinner. We were in church every Sunday, and I sang Amazing Grace, but my takeaway was a wretch like me. In Sunday school, I sang, Jesus loves me. But that that didn't compute. How could he love me, a sinner, a wretch? As a 10-year-old, the concept of grace was way out of my pay grade. And I stagnated on sinner, an undeserving sinner. When I was 12 years old, I made a dutiful profession of faith, and I was baptized. There was no doubt in my mind that Jesus is the Son of God, He died for our sins, and he was the only way of salvation. But my unworthiness tested that belief. Our family's involvement in inner-city ministry was very hands-on. My dad, in his humble but very generous way, bought an old abandoned Kroger store building, and he had it renovated, and it became the Good Samaritan Youth Center in the Huff area of Cleveland. We were there very often in multiple events. And at Christmas time, my parents bought literally over 20 shopping carts filled with toys on the wish list of these impoverished kids. And I helped wrap them. My brother dressed up as Santa Claus, and he handed them out. The magnitude of this giving and the works of this registered with me. But I didn't understand the faith foundation of my parents that was behind this. The other undeniable contrast and impact on my shaky self-worth was the difference in the living conditions of these impoverished children and my luxury life. I witnessed it firsthand and frequently. Why was I born and placed where I was and not in the dirty streets of Cleveland? This ministry emphasized all the more that I was undeserving and such a sinner who needed to work harder to make up for this injustice and to narrow that gap between me and the love of Jesus. 
When I was 14 years old, I had a terrible accident. I fell five stories, 80 feet, and to logically think I shouldn't be here to tell you about that. But on the first Sunday after I was home from the hospital, we were back in church. And one memory is very distinct in my mind. A man approached me, he was very quiet and reflective in his composure, and he said to me, God saved you for a reason. That struck my insecure, unworthy little teenage heart to the core. Now I didn't deserve to be alive, unless I do something. And it better be something big and something significant so I can earn that reason that God saved me. I'm going to save the world from poverty. I'm going to start with Cleveland. Dad made a huge start there, and he set the bar pretty high, but that's where I'm going to start. Four years later, I was off to college with a major in social work and an urgency to get through my studies and get on with my mission. I was taking 34 to 36 course hours per semester. I was driven. But my plans derailed. The guy I was dating asked me to marry him. I thought, I'm already 20 years old. I better take this offer. And I did. And my mission to earn that reason that God saved me was put on hold. It became an abusive relationship. Now I had an audible reminder quite frequently that I was worthless, not fit to be called a human being, So seven years and three small children later, with too many events to recount here, I moved back to my hometown with the financial help of my parents. I was broken, with zero self-esteem, even less direction, and it was barely a faint echo now in the back of my mind, God saved you for a reason. I wasn't even unpacked when there was a knock on the door, and there on my front porch stood a very kind-looking man. He introduced himself as the Reverend Dave Blyvick, my parents' pastor from the Pioneer Memorial Church. I invited him in. He almost immediately opened his Bible to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And he read to me, And I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. He closed his Bible and he looked at me and quietly said, This is your verse. He stayed a bit longer and prayed with me and he left. I was beyond baffled with my verse. My life was in ruins. What good could ever become of that? But he began. A few months later, a very close family friend lived out of town, stopped by unexpectedly, And we chatted a while, and then she asked me, I know you're a Christian, but have you ever invited the Holy Spirit into your life? And I thought, the Holy Spirit? I don't really know him. She prayed with me, and she left, and he began. I learned there was a divorce recovery ministry at my new church, the chapel, and I emerged out of my reclusion. It ministered to me greatly, and I began to heal. A few years later, the Lord led me to join the leadership of that ministry, and he began. Years and years have followed of God's goodness, God's teaching, God's guidance, and my growth, as he, God the Father, became the potter of my little glob of clay, 
His power made perfect in my weakness, not my works. And he began a good work in me. I will always hold and sometimes play the wretch card because I'm a sinner. And that's okay. Because he will always hold and play the grace card. And that amazing grace card will always, always trump that wretch card. That's his promise. That's his truth. And that's my joy and my assurance that Jesus loves me. And because I know this and I trust this and I will give testimony to this, that's the reason God saved me. He who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. My testimony will continue until he brings it to completion. On that day he calls me home be with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. Thank you. said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. 
So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant, Zilpah, to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is, not so done, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Zilpah, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again. And bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Well, we're a little hot. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, you would open our eyes. We want to see Jesus. Open our ears, Lord. We want to hear him speak. And so, God, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we pray that you'd help us to understand what you would have for us in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start out by saying that your expectations shape your reality. They could change your life emotionally and physically, and you need to be extra careful about and aware of the expectations you harbor as the wrong expectations can make your life unnecessarily difficult. Uh, be especially wary of the expectations that follow because they give people all kinds of trouble and these are some of the more popular uh, false expectations. And these I pulled out of a Forbes magazine from uh, uh, August of uh, 86, excuse me, August of 6. 2016. The first one they list on their list of, uh, of false expectations is life should be fair. And it typically we interpret fair as life should smile on us. We should get whatever it is that we want in life, and if we don't, then that's not fair. Number two, opportunities will fall into my lap. Uh, 
I guess the way I've, I've kind of lived is the harder I work, the luckier I get. Uh, but uh, number two, opportunities will fall in my lap. Number three, everyone should like me. When you think everyone should like you, invariably you end up with hurt feelings. Number four, people should agree with me. Number five, people know what I'm trying to say. Number six, I'm going to fail. Number seven, things, things will make me happy. Number eight, oh, here's one. I could change him. I could change her. Those are expectations that oftentimes lead to uh, disaster. I think that's a pretty good list. And of all magazines to say, to confess, to proclaim number seven, things will make me happy, you wouldn't expect that from Forbes magazine. But sure enough, there it is. Uh, What I'm hoping is that by the end of this sermon, I will have made the case for a couple more false expectations and see if you can track them and guess what they might be. Tonight, I want us to look at uh, a biblical uh, example of uh, false expectations and ones that led people into uh, unpleasant circumstances. Uh, the passage that Rachel read is the passage that we're considering tonight. And I want to start out by looking a little bit at the backstory of uh, that Genesis 29 passage. And I suppose with a backstory, we can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and see that God had made a promise to provide a seed of the woman who would first redeem a fallen race and then restore the creation. The seed would travel over time to Abraham, who then was told that he was to leave his family and his homeland and go to a new place. He was to be wholly separated unto God. And Abraham did as he was directed and miraculously had a son, Isaac, who would be the continuation of the promised lineage. Isaac had two sons. Esau, the older, was favored by the father. This is going to be an important point uh, to note that Esau was the older and favored by the father. Isaac, through Esau, or Isaac, Though Esau was a little careless, uh, even though he had the birthright for himself by order of birth, he took his favored older brother advantage for granted, and Jacob, the younger, stole that birthright by deceiving his father. He fooled his father by pretending to be the favored older brother Esau, and in stealing that birthright, earned his brother's murderous anger, and Jacob fled for his life, never to see his mother again, the only one who had, to this point, loved him. He goes to his mother's homeland. He he is broke, he is desperate, and uh, he's afraid. Jacob was rejected by his father, he was hated by his brother, and had to believe the whole world was against him. He was a deceiver from the start, but he honed the skill of deception while living with his mother's brother named Laban. But in Laban, Jacob became the student because Laban was the master of deceit. 
And that's where this story picks up in Genesis 29. So there's four things that we want to bring out of this narrative here. First of all is the deal, then the deception, then the decision, and then the descendants. So first we'll take a look at the deal. Now, Jacob, through a series of uh, providential events, I'll let you read those in the first part of chapter 29, um, he came to meet his uncle Laban, most likely for the very first time. Uh, Jacob is broke, and so Uncle Laban tries to help out and ask Jacob how much does he want to work in Laban's employ. Well, at this point, Laban's two daughters are introduced. We know that Jacob has met the younger, named Rachel, previously. And the author goes to great pains to tell us that Rachel was an extraordinary beauty. And that Leah, well, Leah, not so much. In fact, Leah, we're told, had weak eyes. Maybe she was cross-eyed, but it's a fairly obvious code for the fact that Leah was unattractive. Jacob is absolutely smitten with the younger daughter, Rachel, and is barely able to restrain himself. So, the deal he offers to Laban is seven years of uh, servitude in exchange for the hand of his younger daughter. Jacob was paying an extraordinarily high premium in order to get that younger daughter because that's way more than typically a dowry would have been in that day. And you'll notice in a moment when I read it, Laban didn't say, yes, this is the deal. His answer was a little bit more oblique than that. And Jacob fills in the blanks to make it read like he wanted it to read. So desperate was he. And Laban saw his opportunity, given Jacob's obvious eagerness for Rachel to unload his daughter Leah. The implication is that Uncle Laban was a little concerned that he would end up with Leah forever. Jacob was his mark. Jacob, believing that he had a deal, worked for seven years and anticipation uh, made the time go by quickly. And we read this in the, from chapter 29, verse 15 down to verse 20. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall, uh, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. I think if I were Leah, I'd be feeling a little ripped off right now by that description. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you. This is the oblique part. It's better that I give her to you than that I should give to any other man. So stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him to be about a few days because of the love that he had for her. So that was the deal, the arrangement that he made. Uh, Jacob made with Laban. But then there was a deception. The seven years were up, and Jacob went to collect. Now, 
the translators cleaned this up a little bit, as we will read. But you'll agree that Jacob, at the end of the seven years, marches up to Laban and says, essentially, give me Rachel so that I can have sex with her. Jacob had been rejected by his father in favor of his brother Esau. He had been despised by and grew up in the shadow of his brother. For Jacob, Rachel was his redemption. He was married. Here's this guy who lived in the shadows. And he marries this beautiful, the prettiest girl around. One who knocked him off his feet. Jacob's thinking is, wow, now I'll be loved like I want to be loved. There's some high expectations. Now I'll have status. Now I'll have ascendancy. And Laban knew it. So they had a huge feast with plenty of adult beverages being served. And after partying all day with the bride heavily veiled at night, Jacob took his bride into his tent. The low light, the veils, and the alcohol clouded his perception, and Laban had given his homely daughter, Leah, to Jacob. And in the morning, Jacob realized it was Leah. Noticed in the tent, uh, notice that in the text that we have, the exclamation point. When we read this in just a second, I want you to see that there's an exclamation point in there by the translators. Jacob is furious, and he goes to Laban to register his objection. And Jacob asks, why the deception? And this we read in Genesis 29, from verses 21 through 25. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife so that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah, exclamation point. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? So that was the deception of Laban, the uncle. Now the decision. Jacob, when he was offered a second deal, even though he was clearly angry, meekly acquiesced to the deal. You wouldn't expect that from Jacob. He was the master of deceit and conniving himself. Laban said that it was against the traditions of the country for the younger to go first. So after the honeymoon, seven more years, then Rachel. Now put yourself in Leah's shoes. She had lived in the shadow of her beautiful younger sister. She had some physical issues that she never overcame. And just as Jacob thought that Rachel would be his redemption, Leah thought, Leah expected that Jacob would be her redemption. But Jacob uh, didn't. Jacob wouldn't love her like Jacob loved Rachel. So... Leah is back in the shadows. And we read this in Genesis 29, 26 through 30. Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one. Laban, notice this, that Laban doesn't even call her by name. This one is what he says. Complete the week with this one. 
and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So Jacob did so and completed uh, her honeymoon week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So we have quite a, a, a master of deception working his way uh, and making his way with, with Jacob. And Jacob now has not one but two wives out of the deal. And then the descendants. The Lord blessed Leah with children. And a very strong word is used in verse 31. The word is hated. Jacob hated Leah. But that was her redemption. And she had to live with a husband who hated her and a sister who overshadowed her again. The children she had were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. We're going to read that in, from verse 31 down to verse 35. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. And again, She conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son. This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. And then she ceased bearing. And that's the story. That's the story of Jacob and Laban, and, uh, and the two wives of Jacob, and how that uh, fell out for, for all those players. And that's what the takeaway is. First of all, who are the four players in this story? Well, the first player in the story is Rachel. Rachel is a beautiful woman. Probably we can, we can call her a girl, because at the time she was probably quite young. But that is, uh, that's what is meant in, in Genesis twenty nine seventeen by form and appearance. When it says that, it means that she had a great figure and a beautiful face. That's what form and appearance is about. Jacob was absolutely head over heels for her so much so that he paid a huge premium for her twice. When you consider that he paid the price not only for the one sister who he hated, but also for the other. And in many ways, Rachel was the golden calf. Remember, Israel one day would fashion a golden calf. It was beautiful and it was uh, a calf was a symbol of fertility. Rachel was the golden calf. She represented by her beauty fertility like the golden calf. She was beautiful to behold like the golden calf. Jacob worshipped her like they worshipped the golden calf. But like the golden calf, 
Rachel was powerless to give Jacob what he really needed, which was a new heart. Jacob was bent on the inside. He was despised and rejected by his father and his brother. He was broke and terribly misguided by what was important. And all the beauty in the world cannot change a hardened heart. So Rachel was the first player. The second player, Laban. In many ways, Uncle Laban was a mirror to Jacob. He was deceitful. He was hard-hearted, which we can see by the way he took advantage of Jacob's eagerness and by the way he treated his daughter. He was two-dimensional, and his hard-hearted, deceptive ways gave Jacob a pretty good picture of who he was, who Jacob was. Sadly, even this, while creating sorrow and misery for Jacob, it couldn't change Jacob's hard, dark heart. And that's the third player in this story, Jacob. I think it's an amazing thing that God chose this hard and broken man to be in the lineage of Jesus. God came near in spite of himself. And I would call this a whole incident, an unusual encounter with God. Jacob was a mess. But as I say that, I would also say that every one of us is a mess. Maybe not in the same way, maybe not by matter of degree. But none of us has any moral ascendancy over Jacob. Every one of us has our own issues. Some of them we wear on the outside. And everyone, except maybe ourselves, can see them. Some of them are buried deep inside of us. We don't speak of them to very many people. Maybe we don't tell anyone. And some issues are buried so deep, we don't even realize them. Jacob's, we see. And Jacob was furious with Uncle Laban for deceiving him. And he flies into Laban's face. And Jacob demands, why have you deceived me? I believe that at the moment that Jacob saw himself in the mirror of Uncle Laban, he came to himself. You see, two chapters ago, Jacob stole the family's blessing, which was more than mere words. He was the younger, but he tricked his father so that the younger would go before the older. Laban's deception was the same as Jacob's deception, right down to the words, Why have you deceived me? It's the same construction in both cases, uh, for Isaac and for Jacob. I believe that when Jacob heard himself say those words, Why have you deceived me? He heard his father's voice, not literally, but still nonetheless powerfully. He knew in that moment that he was indeed a scoundrel, and, and that his, he shrunk away, accepting Laban's terms for Rachel without an argument. John Newton of Amazing Grace fame said that no one ever realized that they were a sinner by being told they need to be shown. And I believe that this was uh, that moment for Jacob. Not that he was quite ready to resolve it, but I believe that he saw the cosmic consequences of his sin. When he said those words, his actions had ignited a murderous rage in Esau and his father had sent him away to Uncle Laban. Now he knew 
why he was indeed the scoundrel. And the fourth and uh, final player in this story is Leah. And surprisingly, I think Leah is the really the centerpiece of this story. She is the fourth player. Leah is hated and rejected. Her father seeks to pass her off to Jacob. She has she was uh, hopeful that it might work out with Jacob, but in the end Jacob hated her. And that's most likely a relative hate, relative to Rachel, but it didn't matter. It felt the same. Rejected by her father, an ugly duckling in the community, living in the shadow of her beautiful sister, belittled by her husband, she was a broken person. The redemption she hoped would come through her marriage, high expectations, and that made her marriage an idol to her. It was only a disappointment. Maybe, she thought, I can find that Jacob will love me if I had children by him. And so she began having children. Now, I've read this passage maybe 50 times. I, I, but I learned something when I read a, a book by a, a commentator on this. And, and uh, I want you to look at the first child. The name of the first child was Reuben. And that means to see. Maybe, she thought, my husband will see me now that I have given him a son instead of looking right through me to Rachel. Apparently, that didn't work. So she had another son, and they called him Simeon, which means to hear. She thought with another son, perhaps her husband would listen to her instead of ignoring her. And she tried again and called him Levi, which means to attach she longed for Jacob to be connected to her. Perhaps this son will do it. At this point, I think Leah learned the inadequacy of idols, and this is the ninth misplaced expectation to add to that Forbes list. Idols promise the world, but they deliver much less and lead to discontent. And I think Leah learned that after three children. But she did have a fourth child, a son. She called him Judah. Judah is a Hebrew word, and it means praise. And, and look what, what, he, what she says at this point in Genesis twenty nine thirty five. This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. She stopped bearing children. It is as if she was saying, I'm not going to try to find my identity in men or children or anything else my culture tells me to find it. I'm going to find my identity in Jehovah, God Almighty. And as if to underscore that, she quit having children. And one last thing I want to bring out here. Did you see what just happened here? Remember that seed, that promised seed that came through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It now has come through Leah. She was despised and rejected of men, a woman of sorrows and acquainted with grief. She had no former majesty that, that anyone would look at her and no beauty that anyone would desire her. That is Jesus. That is Jesus. She is the redeemer of the story. Not Laban, not Rachel, not Jacob, but Leah. Leah, weak eyes. 
she was the redeemer of the story. And that's the exact language of Isaiah 53 that talks of the Messiah. And that's the gospel, that God does not come to the strong or to the smart or to the arrogant, but to the weak and the needy. And that's all of our condition. Sometimes we don't recognize it, but that's the deal with all of us. Leah points to a Messiah. She's imperfect, but she foreshadows a Messiah who would be perfect. And there's no heroes in the story. Again, that's the gospel. God has no superstars, only broken people. And he uses those who recognize they are broken. Our default mechanism wants to pump ourselves up to improve our record by shining up the outside. But the inside is full of insecurities, unrighteousness, and, uh, and apathy, antipathy towards God and our neighbors. For Leah, God came near in spite of her brokenness, in spite of her weakness. And one day, from her seed, praise, Judah would come another son. The son of God, who would be a man of sorrows, despised and rejected, and though his suffering, and through his suffering, uh, he would suffer the ultimate indignity. God himself would be rejected by his people. And Jesus would be rejected by his father. Not because of his appearance or behavior, but for our appearance and our behavior. The father rejected Jesus for the mess we are and hated his son, Jesus, by pouring out his wrath and anger at him. This done out of the love of the father for his people and the love of the son for his people and the love of the bridegroom for his bride. Idols don't work. Idols are like a pig's tail. They're good for ornamentation, but of no practical value. Judah meant to praise. And the fruit of praise is hallelujah. Praise Jehovah. We're going to conclude our time together here tonight. By singing Hallelujah, What a Savior. We sang it this morning. This time we're going to sing all the verses. Hallelujah, What a Savior. Let's pray together. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we recognize that we in many ways are, are like Leah. We are broken. We are insecure. We, we need the grace and mercy of a Savior. And so, God, we thank you that our Lord Jesus, who was despised and rejected of men, came into this world and suffered the ultimate indignity, not just death, but rejection by his Father because of our appearance and our behavior. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you have given us this grace in our lives so that now we stand before you whole. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Gordon, take us home. 175 in the hymn books. We're going to stand. We're going to worship. Man of Sorrows. Let's sing it together. Man of Sorrows, what a name.
Now may grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be and abide with each of you, both now and forevermore. Amen, and go in peace.